thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. On ktalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567am Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk 27 minutes to 10 o'clock Every Friday round about this time Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist Joins us, answers your science and natural history related questions remember he is a medical doctor but because of the ethics involved you cannot call and ask for a diagnosis or for treatment we suggest you go to your clinic your healthcare professional and get those very personal questions answered there but now that we've got that out of the way dr chris smith I hope you're well, enjoying your Friday morning. Morning, Lester. Do you know what? We've got better weather than Cape Town today. Now, that's really saying something, isn't it? We're, we're predicted 31 degrees today. So, oh, uh, you, long like it's barbecue last. weather, it's bry weather. Bry weather, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've already, I've already got my recipes lined up. Well, let's jump straight into our first caller, Simon in Brackenvall. Good morning, Simon. Good morning. I shave in the shower and then the mirror mists up. So what I do is I put a little bit of soap on my hand and I just wrap it over the mirror mm-hmm. and then rinse that off and then it doesn't mist up for the whole shower. So why does this soap break the surface tension and then it's rinsed off? Mm-hmm. There's no more soap there, but it still doesn't mist up because I used soap. Great question. Mm. Thanks so much, Hello, Simon. Simon. The answer is you hit the nail on the head. It's surface tension. When you have water vapour from the hot shower in the air, it looks for a cold surface on which to condense. And when the water condenses on, say, your mirror, the water molecules join together and form small droplets. And the droplets form small spheres as droplets on the surface. And they have the effect of scattering light that hits them in all directions. And that's why the mirror looks misty, in the same way that if I take a glass of water... It's clear, but if I turn it into ice and I have lots of little ice crystals, it looks white because it's scattering light in all directions and all colours of light, which when seen together, look white. So what does the soap do? Well, when you put the soap on the surface, although you think you might have washed away all the soap, you haven't. You've left a residuum of soap on the surface. Soap molecules have a way of reducing the molecular forces between water molecules so they don't stick together quite so well and so instead of the water molecules clumping together into small spheres droplets on the surface with that scattering effect you get a thin film of water uniformly distributed over the surface and in that way when the light goes into it instead of it bending backwards and forwards and all over the place and being scattered so that you see a blurry image instead the light goes into this thin film of water is bent once and then comes back out again. So it's a bit like when you look into a swimming pool. Because the water is one uniform body of water, you can still see the bottom of the pool clearly. It might not be in quite the same place that your eye thinks it is, 
because of a refractive effect, but you can still see clearly through the water. And that's why putting a, a layer of soap as a surfactant on your mirror mm-hmm. stops it misting up in that way. Eleanor Plumstead. Good morning, Eleanor. Good morning. My question for the for the naked scientist is that, okay, the story is my, my son, when he was two and a half years old, went for a procedure, actually a simple procedure. When they were preparing him to take him to the theater, mm. they sedated him. But he became hyper. No. They told me that now it happens every now and again. My question is, has there been any study done on those people that behave differently? Because it turned out that my son is neuro um, atypical. Did it? Did he became did he became hyper because he's neuroatypical, or does it also happen to neurotypical people? Mm. Eleanor, appreciate that, Chris. Hi, Eleanor. Well, the answer is that everyone on Earth is distinct and different. Unless you have an identical twin, then we are all genetically individuals. We all look different on the outside and therefore biochemically on the inside, we're all different. And when we take drugs or use medicines, the way those medicines are made for the reasons of the constraints of the pharmaceutical industry is it's a bit like us going into a shoe shop, not having our feet measured, just taking the first pair of shoes off the shelf and ramming our feet into them and hoping they fit okay. Because on the inside we're all different and this means that the drugs that we make, given they're all very specific shaped molecules, we hope that they're a good fit with the structure of the molecules we have in our body and also with the structures of our brains. But because we're all different, there will therefore be people for whom, in the population, quite naturally, some of these drugs are a less good fit than others. And this is why, for instance, if you suffer with hay fever, the first thing I say to people when they say, oh, I've tried antihistamines, they don't work, is I said, how many did you try? Because there are many different types of antihistamine drug and some work for some people and some work better for others. And it's worth shopping around a bit with those sorts of drugs. And it's the same with things that that affect the nervous system in other ways. And it may well be that what's happened here is that whatever agent they were using on your son, it may be that under those circumstances, in him, it provoked a different response than it would in the majority of the rest of the population. doesn't mean he's unusual. It just means he's absolutely normal, actually, because that's exactly what you Mm. would expect to see in a diverse population who are all a bit different. Really appreciate that question, Eleanor. Um, well, this is somewhat connected, uh, I guess, in how brain chemistry and synapses and molecules work. The question here is, Chris, does coffee give me energy or does it prevent me from getting tired? I know it could sound like a either-or question, but I think it speaks to brain chemistry and how your brain and your synapses and your neurons actually interact with chemicals and stimulants and things like that. Is coffee a stimulant or does it simply stop you from parts of your brain releasing that that chemical that makes you tired? It does both. Caffeine is the one drug that the Olympics Association condone our use before we hit the racetrack or the swimming pool. It's the one drug you're allowed to use because it's so ubiquitous. But it's a performance-enhancing drug and that's why athletes all use it. It potentiates the action of adrenaline, the body's stress and excitement hormone. So it does that by stopping adrenaline being broken down. So when adrenaline attacks or targets our cells and tells them to wind up their activity, the, the messengers inside the cell that the adrenaline produces 
are broken down at a certain rate and that limits its action. If you stop those messengers being broken down quite so quickly, which is what coffee does, it's one of its actions, you will prolong the action of this stress and performance boosting hormone and therefore you get a performance boost. But at the same time, our brain has a way of knowing how tired we are. And that's because during the day and during our waking hours, you accumulate slowly in your brain various chemicals, including chemicals called purines, which as they build up, they activate a system that is linked to your tiredness sense. And so Mm. the more there is of that, the more tired you feel. If you take caffeine, caffeine gets in the way of those sensors. So it effectively Mm. blocks them up. So it blinds you to the accumulation of these tiredness chemicals. So although you may feel more awake and alert you have got a stimulus, an arousing effect of the caffeine on your adrenaline system. You've also blocked your ability to realise how tired you are. And Mm. then there's a sort of third spin-off thing, which is people who are hopelessly hooked on coffee, like me, if we don't have coffee, have withdrawal effects as well. And when you take coffee, you partly feel better and brilliant and on top of the world, like you can do anything because you've basically made all the withdrawal effects that were kicking in after a night of not having any coffee... (laughs) go away Mm. and you feel on top of the world and many of these cough and cold remedies the kinds of ones that would say to you you know you've got a horrible flu but you can you can struggle on with the help of this stuff it kind of sorts you Mm. out when you look at the packet you'll see that it does contain some paracetamol that will make you feel Mm. better but there's also a massive dose of caffeine in there and this is because when people are feeling like they've got the flu and they're not very well they don't get up and make themselves as as much coffee and tea as they would do if they were at the office or you know rushing around Mm. after the kids and so part of feeling ill with a cold is caffeine withdrawal so you put that in the cold remedy and you feel doubly better Mm. well speaking of stimulants and it is Getting colder in Cape Town. Uh, Tony is asking, good morning, Lester and Dr. Smith. Can the good doctor explain why sherry warms you up on very cold nights? And from what I understand, uh, it is the illusion or the perception of feeling warm. Is that correct, Chris? Mm, it, It absolutely is. Alcohol, A, contains a lot of calories, the amount of energy locked up in molecules of alcohol is equivalent to eating fat. So if you were to eat the, the, the rind off your bacon, for example, you get as much energy from that as you would from drinking the equivalent mass of alcohol. Very, very energy dense. So it will help you to divert some calories into metabolism and heat generation. But the overwhelming effect, people who drink and get a very flushed face go red, will be very familiar with this. It's a peripheral vasodilator. It opens up vascular beds or blood vessels, and particularly in your peripheries. The first thing the body does when you're feeling cold is it shuts down the supply to your peripheries. Your toes and your fingers and your arms and legs feel cold because the blood is being drawn into the core of your body to help you conserve heat. Because alcohol bypasses that mechanism, it allows heat to flow as hot blood to those peripheries. So it makes you feel warmer everywhere. In fact, what it's doing is accelerating the rate at which you're losing heat. So it's bad in the long run, but feels better in the short term. Dr. Chris Smith answers your science, natural history related questions. Let's go to a quick voice note. Hi, good morning, uh, doctor. I want to speak about shingles. How does shingles come into your body? 
What type of virus is that that comes into your body? Can you give me an answer to that, please? Shingles connected to chickenpox, say eh, Chris? Yep, that's right. So shingles is one manifestation of the virus called varicella zoster virus that causes chickenpox. 90% of populations of countries like South Africa, the UK, America, Australia have had chickenpox. And this member of the herpes virus family lives in your body for life. So once you catch it, and you catch it by usually breathing in the virus because it comes out of a person who's infectious, gets into the air, and usually we breathe it in, it lands in the lungs and triggers its initial infection there, and then it disseminates from the lungs aboard white blood cells all around the body. And it produces the blisters that you get, the itch, and in the skin, those blisters then pop out and release more virus into the air so you can infect other people. But one of the things it does when it grows in the skin is to infect the nervous system. And the nerve supply to the skin in sensory nerves all over the body picks up a cargo of varicella zoster or chickenpox virus. And the virus goes inside those nerve cells and it hides as just a small circular piece of viral DNA in all those nerve cells. And it sits there for the rest of your life. And you've heard of the James Bond film Diamonds Are Forever, where you can add to that herpes is for life. Because once you've got one of the members of this family of viruses in your body, you never get rid of it. And there are lots of them. There's herpes simplex that causes cold sores. There's varicella zoster virus that causes chicken pox. There's Epstein-Barr virus that causes glandular fever. They're all related. They all work the same way. And once it's in your nervous system, it sits there. Usually it's controlled by the immune system. But periodically through life, if we have a period of, of immune debilitation or we take drugs that suppress the immune system, mm. you have a problem like HIV or sometimes it can be menstruation that does it. It can be malnutrition. Something causes your immune response to dip mm. a bit and it's a bit like you take down your defences temporarily and with that breach, the virus sneaks through the breach and it comes mm. back. But it doesn't come back comprehensively all over your body unless you're very heavily immunosuppressed. It comes back in just one patch of skin called a dermatome and you get one strip of effectively chickenpox blisters but it's very, very painful and people feel ill, they feel very debilitated and tired, they can be a bit feverish and they have this strip of painful blisters on their skin. They're very infectious. So if you have this on an uncovered body part, you could give chickenpox to another person because they'll come as mm. chickenpox in them. The people to worry about, obviously immunosuppressed people and women who are pregnant, must make sure that uh, you don't give it to people who haven't had chickenpox. If you've had chickenpox before, no problem mm. at all if uh, someone with shingles comes near you. But if you get those shingles blisters, taking the drug acyclovir promptly when they first appear for a week can help to suppress the manifestation called post-herpetic neuralgia because some people find that that patch of skin after they've had shingles and they've recovered can stay mm. feeling wrong in inverted commas, not right for quite a period of time afterwards. It'd be very, very painful, but acyclovir can help to stop that. Chris, I just sang in my head, Shirley Bassey, happy is forever. And I thought I could make a song. Actually. I liked it, though. <laughs> Thanks. No, no one will forget a... that now. No, everyone is now a world export on happy her piece, and they'll never forget forever. this. Mike, Dr. Mike in Finance, you want to take us back to the conversation of the myth of feeling warm when consuming yeah, imbibing did. alcohol. Yeah, I did some research on this some years ago and followed the literature quite closely. 
And although the standard explanation that alcohol dilates your skin is uh, in all the books, in fact, there was a group of Canadian researchers who got volunteers to sit in four-degree water with or without alcohol on board, and they actually cooled more slowly. And the argument they put forward was that it's a um, change in blood supply so that the skin doesn't dilate, but the muscles underneath do, so that you retain heat, but you feel better. So, in fact, you do, alcohol does not make you colder in cold weather, mm. despite what all the textbooks say. Interesting. Uh, Mike, although, and... although, Mike, what I would say is that you can't argue with my point about facial flushing. And, I mean, that no, may not be a direct consequence of alcohol. It may be a metabolite of alcohol. But at the same time, uh, it does cause a degree of peripheral skin vasodilatation because otherwise people wouldn't go bright red when they booze. You don't get colder. No, it's very interesting you what you're saying. Um, it, it's very interesting what you're saying. That, that that may be an artificial circumstance as well, though, because four degrees water immersion is quite a significant stimulus, isn't it? Did they do the experiment in a in a or did you do the experiment in in a way that was quite so undramatic? Because the amount of drive to your nervous system from your skin of being immersed in four degrees C is going to be profound. That's going to be a really, really significant drive to vasoconstrict. And it may well be that that would surmount the dilatator, dilatory effect of alcohol at a higher temperature. So it, there might be a sweet spot, mightn't there? And I studied the metabolic effects of alcohol in rats. And they warm slightly faster than rats given an equivalent volume of uh, sugar. So I guess that the energy was more efficiently used from the alcohol than from the sugar uh, in these rats. And that was published in uh, pharmacological research about 20 years ago. Appreciate that, Mike. Chris, I have friends um, who are from Asian descent, East Asian descent. Yeah. Um, and they call they have something that I only found out recent called Asian flush. That's right. In that my friend Kanishi is 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 his father's Italian, his mother is 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 Japanese. He he could have one glass of wine, doesn't necessarily need to be any form of hard liquor, but but one glass of a or one unit of of alcohol and his face, his cheeks are absolutely flushed and maybe have a little bit of a of a sweat. Is is that a, a neurochemical or bit metabolic reaction? And how does that, that why is it that many people of East Asian descent have that experience? Alcohol is a toxin and it gets broken down in the chiefly the liver by a metabolic pathway involving alcohol dehydrogenase. And the more of that you have the greater your ability to break down alcohol, but you break it down into something which is called acetaldehyde. And you break that down by other metabolic processes and also because it's water-soluble by peeing it out. But some people have lower or higher levels, relatively speaking, of the different enzymes in this metabolic pathway. And so they can quite quickly break down the alcohol, but then they're less good at breaking down the breakdown products. And the breakdown products are inflammatory. Acetaldehyde is one carbon atom and a few hydrogen atoms different from what we use to embalm bodies, for example. So it's washing around in your bloodstream, and it's part of the reason you feel vile after you've had a heavy night and you get a hangover, because you're basically fixing all your tissues internally. But in some people, particularly in people who are of East Asian descent, you will find that there's a different representation of the different forms of these genes that make them 
perhaps less good at metabolizing some of the breakdown products mm. and so you get more of this inflammation and so you do see a flushing reaction that's more pronounced i went mm. to school with a japanese guy who um, one glass of wine and he was very very uh, under the table mm. on the other hand i i went and spent christmas about 20 years ago with a japanese family and um they were drinking me under the table of all this sake every night and uh, <laughs> i couldn't touch them so uh, it's not it's not a given that everyone has mm. this but in the population there are people who are much less good at metabolizing some aspects of, of what alcohol breaks down into it and mm. that accounts for the manifestation you've described Joe in Tukai is asking, hi, Dr. Chris, if water is 1,000 times more dense than air, why don't we weigh one one-thousandth in water? Well, you can do the experiment, actually. If you take a bucket and fill it up with water and try and lift it, it's very heavy. But when you put the bucket of water in water, it appears very, very light. And we've all done that, where we, we go to the seaside or whatever with our bucket and spade, and we put the bucket in the sea, and we've got a bucket of water, and it's moving around in the water absolutely fine. Lift it up, and goodness me, it weighs a lot. Why the difference? The difference is that when the bucket is in air, it's a bucket of water floating in the air, and it's pushing out of the way a volume of air equivalent to the volume of the bucket. And air weighs a lot less than water does, so you feel the weight of the bucket. But when you put the bucket of water in the sea or in the swimming pool, it's now pushing out of the way a volume of water equivalent to the volume of the bucket, which, of course, that water weighs as much almost as the bucket in the water, and that pushes back on the bucket as hard as the bucket is pushing on it, so it feels almost weightless. And when we go in the sea, the reason that we float is because our density is about 1.5-ish, so we're close to the density of water. So we almost want to float because we're pushing out of the way a volume of water equivalent to the volume of our body, which weighs almost as much as we do. So the water's pushing us up almost as hard as we're pushing it down. So actually you do weigh less in water, which is why we float and which is why boats, which weigh thousands of tonnes, can still float because they're pushing out of the way a much bigger weight of water in volume terms than the boat itself weighs. Maybe this question is a chance for for you to explain climate science. And Mark asks, as hot air rises, has the heat emanating from the ensuing, and I made this clear, I asked him again, Russo-Ukrainian war, um, could that be responsible for global global climatic change resulting in rising temperatures, flash, flash floods and extreme downpours. Um, just your response to that question and the concept of how climate science and climate change works. He's asking <laughs> the heat from this last three months of, of armed conflict in Ukraine, how, could that have an impact on temperature rise? Our release of greenhouse gases affects the balance of the composition of the atmosphere and that in turn will affect global temperatures. But you've got to look at it in relative terms. Relative to what the world is doing, is there enough release of chemicals and global climate change gases from what's going on in Ukraine and Russia up against what's going on in the rest of the world to make a demonstrable difference? Every year the world releases about 30 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, give or take. One country having one war is actually, and you could argue, the loss of industry from the affected areas of that country will have reduced the carbon footprint in many ways. I would say that actually probably it will make very little difference, at least in the short term. Mm. When they come to rebuild, though, 
it may make a big difference because when they come to clear up the mess and then put new concrete buildings up and rebuild things, concrete is a huge emitter because you basically are roasting rocks, driving off carbon dioxide in order to make cement. And OK, when it sets, it does pull down some of that CO2 again, but you've had to burn a huge amount of energy to make the cement in the first place, and that usually has a big carbon footprint attached to it. So mm. I'd say there will be a big carbon footprint to the rebuilding, but the conflict as it is at the moment, probably mm. it's probably net neutral, or it may even have reduced the carbon footprint of some bits of Ukraine, because of the loss of industry. Mm. Dr. Chris Smith, a pleasure. Fascinating as always. Looking forward to chatting to you next week. It's a kids edition, schools edition next week, the final Friday of the month. Much harder when Pre- it's a school. <laughs> <laughs> when, when it's a preschool or primary school, it's, it's far more complicated questions. But Dr. Chris Smith, looking forward to Have next week one. as always. Bye, Lester. Have a good week. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.